listening to the HR Mixtape, your podcast with the perfect mix of practical advice, thought-provoking interviews, and stories that just hit different so that work doesn't have to feel, well, like work. Now, your host, Sherry Simpson. Joining me today on the podcast is Jason Rizzoli. He is an accomplished HR professional with over 20 years of experience in various industries. He has a proven track record of driving business improvements through employee engagement, enhancing company culture, and strategic initiatives. Jason's career began with a dual bachelor's degree in human resource management, as well as management and organizational behavior from Ryder University. He went on to complete his master's degree in labor and employment relations from Rutgers University, and since then, he has worked with a variety of top organizations, including large corporations and small businesses, to develop and implement effective HR strategies. Jason, thanks so much for jumping on with me today. Great. Thank you. You have had a pretty long career in the HR space, and you've done a lot of work in the corporate culture Um building corporate culture, thinking about corporate culture. And so really wanted to talk to you about that today. I thought maybe we could start with you sharing, you know, as you've worked in your different roles, what are some of the main ingredients that you think about in crafting a compelling and really sustainable corporate culture? Well, I think it all goes back to um, the mission, vision, and values of an organization, um, how HR can impact and align those values to the strategy and the prioritization of work. Um, You know, we're in the people business. I know we hear that a lot, but businesses are run by people and getting the most out of those people with talent management is um, probably the most important part of sustaining winning culture. So, um, and ultimately the employer designation of choice. So uh, I look at it as going back to hierarchy of needs. Um, You want to have, you know, the physiological needs, you want to have the safety needs, the love and belonging, the steam, and then ultimately the self-actualization and trying to cope that, um, making sure you have the utmost needs taken care of and then esteeming or trying to esteem to that self-actualization uh, within an organization ultimately. How have you seen HR work at that level with that mission, vision, value level so that, you know, as HR continues to shape and maintain that corporate culture, that they have some input at that level to begin with. Making sure we're fostering the connection points. Um, Theologically, we're looking at tying back the comp benefit structure, the work, and then then now it's become really prevalent in the workspaces to work by balance associates, whether or not it's their their work setting uh, or or whatnot to tying that back into you know, how that fosters the needs, safety needs, um, of, you know, making sure safety meetings are done, routine maintenance on vehicles or the, the tools that even that they have in order to be productive. Um, and then being able to, again, both physically and mentally being uh, setting up ways to proactively take care of that love and belonging. Uh, this is kind of like where I believe tenure mentorship and the learning development aspects of an organization come into play, uh, making sure that we're um, having, uh, again, a space where associates can feel good about feedback channels and where their position is within the organization, how it ties into those values, a lot of surveying, uh, esteem. Uh, that's where the leadership, the communication comes in, the feeling of belonging, uh, you know, where, where they're going to be going uh, based on those guiding principles of the organization. And um, that's where I kind of like I live in. 
a lot uh, with my with my role. So, you know, treating people with the golden rule, um, having a team approach, one team, one shared vision, how that ties into those into the cor- corporation, the practicing of uh, like servant leadership, um, living by what I call the five P's, which is proper preparation prevents poor performance. So, you know, that's you know, the work smart, not hard philosophy. You know, always trying to creatively streamline an org to be efficient, but while at the same time being innovative and fun, and then ultimately making sure everyone is happy and joyful, because that's what I believe the meaning of life is. And then really striving for those employees to be self-actualized, you know, self-actualists. And that goes back to like an interpersonal of, you know, being being your best self, trying to improve slightly every day. And for a company, that means being the employer of choice within their industry, uh, which is, I think, every company's achievement of what they want to be. So again, tying all those things back into those mission, vision, and values of the organization is what's really important um, from an HR perspective. I know that was long-winded, but I want to get that out there of like how I believe and think of it. So it's it's really intricate. Well, and I think it I think all the different pieces you've described are really how you see an EVP and employee value proposition come to life. And you gave some really good examples of you know, sometimes it gets hard to define culture, you know, it gets kind of labeled as the way we do things around here. So I really appreciated all those examples because those were examples about how you think and work and approach process that can tie into that mission, vision, values, and really bring your culture to life. Exactly. You know, I I kind of think of it as like, so no one person is an organization. However, one person could put in the processes and stepping stones and strategic framework to make an organization successful now. So they can't do it all themselves, but they can be a master planner. And that's how I see HR operating within a corporation at a senior level is, you know, they're not, they're not actually a doer, but they are part of the master planning of how, of the framework of that organization. Um, and we play a really key role in that. In an industry where employees might not be office-based, um, or you have, you know, industries now where people are still fully, either fully remote or fully in office, right? That's really challenged us to think about how do we make sure that our company culture is communicated and felt across, you know, all levels and all locations. What are some unique strategies you're seeing in that space? So it brought around a lot of technology change, uh, technological changes that have been amazing, right? So, um, Sears, when I was there, was pretty much on the forefront of that. Um, we you know, for the most part, a lot of our population, majority of our population was remote already or hybrid already, uh, which was a competitive advantage. I mean, like they embraced it. Um, I, that was a that was a big reason why I stayed with the company personally. I mean, I'm sharing that because it offered a work-life balance that um, many other companies couldn't provide. Um, and it was important to me at that part of my life. Um, but going back to the technology aspect, um, you know, I can't imagine having employee meetings, you know, um, now where it's just a phone call or a conference call without, without us being able to see each other, feel each other, you know, through the, you know, through a virtual setting, um, you know, but there is a need for things like trust and verify, right? Cause you're not there overlooking the work possibly. So whether or not that is through, you know, um, utilization of, tr- of tools that can track incoming phone calls and call centers and productivity, f- you know, from that perspective, or even if it's just like expectations around responding to emails at the very basics of, you know, which, you know, when we started our careers, it was always 
the professional um, you know standard to respond to an email within 24 hours. Now, sometimes that's challenging, you know, with the amount of influx that you might get in a day. But um, but if an associate goes three four days without responding to an email, yeah, there's probably a problem. So trust but verify approach is important. Uh, trying to utilize as much virtual connection as possible is huge. Um, but it's also allowed. Um, you know, larger interactivity. So what I mean by that is, um, you know, in meeting in person was always usually smaller group settings. So now through, you know, through these larger uh, video uh, conference chats, you're able to spread, break down silos and spread those meetings across the larger employee population. And then lastly, I would just point out that, you know, utilization of icebreakers and team building exercise to make sure that there's a personal connection is extremely important. Um, and I think it's easier um, for some reason, you know, for some reason to be able to do that. So in person, um, it takes that icebreaker time for employees to be comfortable with each other. For some reason, I think that, you know, it, it through a computer setting, through a virtual setting, it allows that to happen more free will. So, um, I enjoy, I really enjoy, I've not, I, some of the people on my team, I never met before in 12 years, but I know everything about them, you know, and it's been amazing. There is something to be said about, the point about having access to more people on video calls, you know, you can see when we went remote, you know, you can see their backgrounds and their, their living situation. You can ask questions. And uh, for some people, I'm sure that was great. I'm, I'm an extreme extrovert. So I, I loved those piece of details for some people, obviously that could be very intimidating, right? <laughs> if you're used to, you know, showing up a certain way. Um, what about those that are not had not had the opportunity to go fully remote? How are you seeing you know strategies around around that population, especially if they're in an environment where there's people in office and then there are like maybe knowledge workers are remote? There, there's there's expectations of, of roles, right? So I think people they understand their role in the organization, what their contributions are, and the reason why um, they might have to be in person uh, because of the nature of their work. I mean, it's again, it's, it's not that they're extremely important in what they do, but it's just, again, you can't have a factory worker that works remote. We, you know, we had service technicians at Sears that went to customers' homes, you know, it, it, and sales professionals that were at home. Yeah, they're, they're, they're on the road. Uh, we have workers that are supported from a technological standpoint are supporting servers in the, in the buildings, um, uh, you know, in offices that, you know, had lunch cafeterias. I mean, so there's an expectation of the jobs of uh, obvious why they're in person. Um, I, and again, I think there is, it, it's making sure, and I've, and I've done a couple podcasts on this before, it's making sure that the work setting for in-person is conducive to a person wanting to be there. So, you know, what are you doing to, enjoy, to make sure that that, again, that belonging part of Pavlov's theory is taken care of that, you know, where they are, are drawn to the office space as that space being, you know, conducive to, again, helping them with their work-life balance somehow in a different aspect. Is there a dry cleaners on site? Well, I'm talking about larger corporations. When I, when I worked at Lucent, and this is 20 years ago, and I, and I know I'm dating myself, but, you know, we had, we had the dry cleaners on site. We had the softball teams that were that were work set up in person, you know. There, um, we had we had um, you know a banking. Uh, we had a bank on site. We had th- you know ATM machine. So we had the convenience. We even had a barbershop on site and and a and a medical facility, you know, nurse station. So you know there was things that were huge um, and, and very forward looking at that point uh, when I worked that are probably overlooked and not not taken into account with with certain. Um, 
companies nowadays. But if you have a corporate headquarters, that's why those corporate headquarters that are successful, um, where people go into the larger, you know, the, the Fortune 500s, the Fortune 100 companies, they have those types of settings. They have the set to draw. Yeah, for sure. As you've worked in different roles and in different organizations, and you've thought about developing culture, how have you, how have you thought about creating a culture that gives room or allows room for the culture to evolve with time? You know, I I think back to the last three years and everything that we've experienced from, you know, COVID and, you know, the rise of uh, a more prominent social justice movement, all of that is affecting our cultures, you know, and how do we give space for that? Again, I think it's important to know what your SWOT analysis is as a corporation and what your value proposition is. So, uh, you know, being at Sears, I had some very challenging times. I mean, I was kind of in like warfare, I would say, almost for years, you know, taking a company through a bankruptcy, reemerging from a bankruptcy, relearning what you're, you know, a, a completely different business that, you know, used to be the, one of the largest employers in the, in the world um, and one of the most popular historical companies in the world to being a revolutionized business that's transformed into a, a very small private equity company. You know, again, knowing what your strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats are, um, knowing what your value proposition is, not just for your product line, but also your employee population and that culture. So, you know, what is the draw to your company? What is the draw to your products? What are we, what are we offering as a company? Um, and then not being um, oblivious or, you know, intrinsical in the way you think, um, meaning don't think that you're invincible to what the outcomes of external society, geopolitical pressures are and maybe out there or the evolution of the of society, um, embrace it, understand, take feedback both internally and externally of your employee population and your customer populations uh, to see what those trends are so that way you can be on the forefront um, or else, quite honestly, you will be like Sears Retail and Kmart that get overtaken by online retailers like Amazon and you fall behind and you're your business to really get um, you know inundated in the wrong way. As you work on tracking some of those things that you talked about, how do you measure the effectiveness of, you know, a company's culture? I mean, obviously there's things like attrition, right? You would look at exit surveys, that kind of stuff, but is there other metrics or other signals that you have find particularly valuable in in measuring where your culture's at? Yeah. So, I mean, we do, again, from an HR perspective, there's, there's lots of business things that you could do. Obviously you have, you know, financial metrics, marketing metrics, you know, um, that you look at, but from a, from an HR perspective, we use, we do a lot of employee surveys, right? So there's different touch points within the employee population, um, that are very important. There, um, what I mean, touch points in the time, you know, what incoming employees, how is your onboarding? Um, you know, new, especially those new hires, what, what's the feeling, what drew you to the company, you know, uh, your incumbent, your, you know, mid, your, uh, mid tenured associates, I would say, how's been the learning development, the training, the, uh, the onboard, you know, the onboarding after the first six months, um, what do you see as the career pathing? Then you get into, um, again, round tables and town halls of, of sort of sort. And, and then engagement surveys. So at Sears, again, we did daily pulse checks. Like you're thinking like, wow, daily. But yeah, I mean, we had a daily pulse check that we would do to employees. Um, and it's obviously optional, right? It wasn't forced, but it was, a, it was a way for them to just give a thumbs up or thumbs down in the day and optionally give feedback um, in, te- you know, in text uh, form additionally if they wanted to. And we had a 90% participation rate typically. 
um, which was amazing. Um, and we could, we could identify employee trends at an individual level over time or a group level, you know, group team level over time. We, it was invaluable that information that we got to be able to understand um, what was going well, what wasn't going well. And it was only a, we were only able to do that based on trust. Um, you know, making sure that the information gathered, the feedback gathered, um, we were able to make actions and sometimes direct interaction with the associate um, in a work, in a, an environment that was based on trust. And never once, amazingly, um, very proud of, never once did we did that trust ever come into question with an associate, even when it was they were complaining about the manager. Um, so again, feedback is huge. And then at the end point, Unfortunately, we do. There, every employee, every company has churn, right? Every company has turnover. So, making sure that you're capturing your exit interview data of where those misses were, um, so that way you can understand uh, what was causing your churn, and possibly even be proactive and predictive in your turnover analysis, which is something that we were, um, you know, really striving to achieve while while at my last role at Sears is is trying to have predictive analysis for churn. Um, so we can understand not just what was causing it, but at what point that employee decided to look elsewhere, because that was the point where it was too late. Not the late, not the not the day they left, the day they decided to leave. Um, you know, before they actually resigned, that was the point, predictive point that we were trying to to, to to get to. Which is really good if you're if you're doing state interviews in your organization. That's a really good piece of data to to gather that information from. You know, that 90% survey rate, that is phenomenal. How how do you think or what tactics do you think contributed to getting that type of engagement from your employees? Yeah, no, no problem. I mean, again, it was it was an environment based on trust, but it was also, it was make, it was, so we're all about convenience in life. It wasn't inconvenient for the associate to simply put a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And if they, and again, the open text, if they felt like contributing more, they could do so. So it literally took them, you know, five seconds to 30 seconds a day to do, to make, to just sign off an up or a down and what was contributing to that if they wanted to. Um, and, you know, I, I think they understood the importance of, of the data, you know, so that's the other aspect is, you know, employees feeling, that their contributions for feedback are actually listened to and actioned upon. Um, so that, that was important as well. Um, but, you know, they trusted that what they said is, was being listened to by leadership and leadership was taking that into account with how they wanted to shape the business. And that goes back to some of the, you know, again, about feeling of belonging and contribution uh, to, the com- to the company and their mission and values is, is the transparency of an organization. Um, knowing that it wasn't just an authoritarian uh, organization, that it was an organization based on servant leadership and, you know, that practice servant leadership and also was transparent and had their communication and how they lived and breathed and operated. Yeah, that communication piece is so important because, you know, a lot of people, I think, try to do surveys and then they don't communicate what's happening with the surveys or where the data went or how they use it. You know, every organization, I think, resists 
uh, faces resistance or pushback when you're implementing cultural changes. You have new leaders come on board. You have maybe you get acquired by another organization. There's all these scenarios that we find ourselves in in HR where, you know, typically we can feel the culture shift before it's, you know, on paper. How have you handled those scenarios? You know, I'm curious if there's any lessons you've learned from, you know, past experiences when you do find your culture shifting. Yeah. So again, I, I, let me, let me take it through Sears. So 2018, we went through a bankruptcy. Then 2019, we reemerged a different company. We went through five CEOs in five years. I mean, we have, a, we had a, we were PE backed uh, through ESL investments. And, and, and again, it was, so talk about leadership churn or, you know, top of the spectrum leadership churn and how that affects culture, uh, a culture, an ever revolving culture of change. Um, so managing that, it was uh, really attested to, uh, to the existing leadership team that remained with the company over that period of time and the HR team, uh, our ability to be able to keep our employee population focused on what those, again, those objectives were, the mission of the company was, and that was to be you know, the, the best home service provider in, in the space that we operated, um, and then keeping tied to our values. Again, um, just because uh, there's a leadership change at the top, doesn't mean that the mission values and vision of the company are ever changing. So um, we use OKRs, so objectives, uh, key results, to in order to tie back individually uh, an associate's uh, contributions to the company goal, their goals and objectives, all the way to the top. And we use the internal system a tool that would allowed it to be transparent. So I could see every single associate's objectives, key results, OKRs within the company and their ratings dating back for years. So um, the transparency was awesome from that perspective. Now there was obviously a way to make certain things confidential if it was, uh, but that was rarely used. Uh, you know, cert certain leaders would have to use that, um, but, but that was rarely used. So again, having a culture of transparency um, focused on what the mission was, one team, one goal, one focus, was what is really drives an employee, you know, the employees. And then having strong leaders, uh, mid-level leaders especially, that would help make sure that the employees were um, wanting to be there, wanted to work for it. Love your people, as I say, right? And they'll love you back. Oh, I love that. Love your people and they will love you back. Well, Jason, this has been such a great conversation. I think we're all kind of in this mindset now as we think about culture and the future of work and how we continue to support our organizations and move that needle forward with some things. So thanks for taking a few minutes of your day to chat with me. I really appreciate it and love to come back anytime you want. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find show notes and links at thehrmixtape.com. Come back often and please subscribe, rate, and review.